Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global Beyond Jerusalem, with a message entitled Transformation. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, verses 19 to 27, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. The reality of conversion is that not only is a person forgiven and cleansed and promised eternal life, conversion is always the story of transformation. Every believer in Jesus will testify, I am not what I once was. Believers in Jesus, especially those who are converted after their childhood, are left in amazement at how radical has been their transformation. You know, I know this transformation is not complete, that is, not until we're finally glorified and we stand before God in glory. I know we still struggle with the world and the flesh and the devil now. I know there are still times when it seems, at least in certain seasons, that looks like we're going backwards and not forwards. The process of becoming ever more like Christ, well, it's surely a project of a lifetime. But all believers will identify with John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. You know, he's the converted slave trading captain who found faith in Christ. After his conversion, he wrote, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I'm not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Acts chapter 9 is not simply the amazing conversion story of Saul of Tarsus, but it's also the story of how Christ changed him. As I've done with the conversion story, I will say a great many things about Saul's conversion will have to forever be unique to him. Very few of us physically met Jesus while we were on the way to persecute Christians in an attempt to destroy the entire Jesus movement. And yet, as we saw, there are some elements in the conversion of Saul that is also a part of every other conversion story in history. But now we move to the beginning of Saul's transformation. And like his conversion, we will see elements that will forever be unique to him. This is because Jesus was calling Saul to become an apostle. And apostles by their very nature. Well, it's not an ongoing office in the Christian church. Apostles established the Christian church. They, they laid the groundwork or the foundation for Christianity for all times. They were charged with laying out the doctrine that Jude would later call the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. See, I mean to say that what the apostles did was lay the foundation upon which future generations were called upon to build. See, the foundation is laid once for all, and it must never be changed. It is this foundation that we find is the New Testament. Saul's transformation story can't be faithfully told if in telling it, we make it simply a model for how everyone is transformed in Christ. Yes, of course, we're all transformed in Christ when we're saved. And yes, our transformation also has something to do with our mission, the very thing that Christ is individually calling us to fulfill. And so, yes, there will be similarities. But every once in a while, when studying a passage of Scripture, you know, we're called upon to just marvel at what God has done and simply rejoice in how what God has done has changed the world. So let's begin by reading our passage. And here I'm reading Acts 9, 19b to 22. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? 
of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. You know, Luke, who's the author of Acts, is giving us a very condensed version of what has occurred. Luke simply says, for some days, Saul remained in Damascus. And we have to imagine that Ananias was doing his best to help the believers in Antioch get over their fear of Saul, explaining what God had done, explaining the vision he had seen, and explaining the conversion story. But then, says Luke, immediately, and we have to think that there was hardly any time gap at all, when Saul was appearing in the synagogues and he was preaching. Now, if you know the history of Saul, you'll also know that that preaching in the synagogues, well, that became a practice that he continued to do throughout his life because Saul was known as a leader in Judaism. It was natural for the synagogues to open the door for him to come and to invite him to come and speak. And Luke says he wasted no time teaching that Jesus was the Son of God. And then, if you go to the end of verse 22... We have him also proving that Jesus was the Christ or that he is the long-expected Jewish Messiah. And we might ask the question of how that was even possible, you know, for Saul to pivot that quickly. Would he not have needed some time to study the scripture? Well, yeah, he had physically met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And yes, his previous worldview had come crashing down. But, but how is it that he so quickly comes to the conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God? You know, and furthermore, most synagogue rulers would have thought that kind of talk blasphemy. So I have to imagine that Saul's using Psalm 2, verse 7. You know, it's a psalm that's true of David, but ultimately, it refers to the Messiah, who's going to spring up from David's line. Psalm 2, 7, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. I don't know how detailed Saul's theology would have been at this point. You know, Jesus is the Messiah, and according to Psalm 2, 2 Samuel 14, makes him the Son of God. And perhaps that's all that Saul knew then, but but notice he doesn't hesitate. He's not going to be a secret follower of Jesus. And the first reaction, and notice it here, is is not hostile. It's, It's confusion. I mean, most people don't have a firm grasp of the miracle of conversion. I mean, how could this man who once persecuted the church suddenly be arguing for the very thing that just a short time ago he was seeking to destroy? Notice verse 22 says that Saul was increasing in strength. Again, Luke doesn't elaborate, but it's clear what he's communicating. The phrase growing or increasing in strength, well, it doesn't mean he's becoming physically stronger. It means that he's presenting Jesus with increasing clarity. He's learning on the fly. And we have to imagine what had happened. At first, everyone in the synagogue is shocked to hear Saul preaching Jesus as the Son of God and the Messiah. And then after the initial shock wears off, one begins to hear the critics coming out. Uh, Then they begin to mount arguments against him, and Saul hears them. But you have to remember, that's not surprising to him. He used to give those very same arguments himself. It's extremely difficult to counter a man who once could not only make the arguments that you're now making, but he could articulate them better than you can. And he now thinks that your arguments don't hold any water, and that kind of a man quickly becomes a threat. Now remember, when we began to discuss this text, I said that that Luke has given us an abbreviated account, and I think that the very first words of verse 23 shows us just how abbreviated that account is. You know, Luke writes, when many days had passed. See, it's hard to know if this is where the abbreviation happens. 
but at least in my estimation, I think this is where it is. See, from my understanding, the words after many days actually cover a period of three years. So why do I say that? Well, I say it because of what Saul or Paul, as he became known later, actually said about his own experience right here. And I'm reading Galatians 1, 15 to 18. See, Paul's explaining his unique call to become an apostle. So let's listen to him. He says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remain with him 15 days. So why is that important? And for that matter, what was Paul doing in Arabia? What did he do while he was there? I mean, so many questions, and it turns out these are very important questions because these questions will tell us something of the nature of our faith, the Christian faith. See, first of all, we have to imagine how important Paul's years in the desert were for him personally. He no doubt needed time to reflect. He had come to terms with his culpability in the many whom he had arrested and of their treatment. Like John Newton, the slave ship captain, he needed time to consider how many lives he had destroyed. And Paul needed time. But that's not the greatest drama that happened in the Arabian desert. Look again what he says in Galatians 1, 11 to 12. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, that becomes central to understanding Paul. You see, right after Paul says, my gospel was not man's gospel, well, then he tells us of the three years he had spent in Arabia. So it becomes clear that for three years, it was not one of the apostles teaching Paul, but it was the risen Jesus appearing to Paul that taught him the gospel he later preached. Everything that Paul would later preach came not from being discipled or trained by other Christians, but came by being trained by Jesus. We know that making trustworthy Bible teaching available to all Canadians is important to you. It is with that in mind that we created the 1119 Fellowship, a monthly giving program. This fellowship program ensures that the true wisdom found in the Bible will continue to be shared and made available for generations to come. One of our 1119 members wrote to say, I know that I can trust what is taught by Dr. Neufeld. This is why we're monthly supporters of this ministry. I've been so encouraged by the teaching of the Bible. The research that has been done by Dr. John has opened my eyes to the truths of the Bible. Thank you. God bless you. To learn more about the 1119 Fellowship, the benefits of joining, and to become a member, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or call 1-800-663-2425. I don't know why Luke omits that part of the story in which Saul spent three years in Arabia meeting with the risen Jesus, being trained by him, told which gospel he was supposed to preach. See, it may be that Luke would leave that part for Paul to tell later, but 
we need to imagine that when Saul of Tarsus arrived back in Damascus, he was a changed man. The depths of his insight now formed the basis for the gospel of Jesus and would, from that moment on, transform the church. That's why I began to say that the story of Saul of Tarsus must never be told as simply the story of how one man was transformed by Jesus. See, this one man was God's chosen instrument to take the message of Jesus and make it understood by all the Gentiles. Saul's story is a part of the story of the missionary God who used this one man to make the gospel of Jesus into a global phenomenon. And I put it that way because in the 20th century, there has been a concentrated effort to blame, and yes, I use the word blame, but to blame Saul, the rabbi from Tarsus, for making Jesus the local teacher of righteousness into the global son of God. To this day, there are all manner of people who argue that Saul or Paul's gospel is simply different from the one that Jesus taught. And what do we make of that charge? Was Jesus simply a local prophet, or as some understand him, a reformer within Judaism who was transformed to become the global Messiah by the intellectual rabbi from Tarsus? But of course, anyone thinking that will realize how silly that charge is. Paul didn't reinvent Jesus, not at all. So for instance, John in John 1 verse 1 says that Jesus was and always has been the only son of God. And John 1 verse 3 says that Jesus made all things. Matthew 16 records Peter finally getting it. Peter says, I know who you are. You're the long expected Messiah and you're the son of God. And in Matthew 16, we read about the transfiguration in which Peter, James, and John hear a voice from heaven, God saying of his son Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. See, all the gospel writers describe Jesus' miracles over diseases, over nature, over demons, and over death itself. All the gospel writers describe with great detail Jesus conquering death itself. And in John 8, 58, John records Jesus as saying, Before Abraham was, I am. That is, I am the eternally existent one. See, anyone who claims that Paul invented Jesus simply hasn't read the rest of the New Testament. But Paul did do something that none of the other apostles had been able to do. So there is something unique to Paul. Paul explains that in Ephesians 3, 4 to 6, where he writes, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. See, by describing the gospel that the death of Jesus was a satisfaction of God's wrath, that reconciliation with God consisted by grace alone through faith alone. By insisting on this and by understanding the implications of it, Paul opened the door wide for the Gentiles to come to Christ without demanding that they would be circumcised or adhere to Jewish regulations. See, that insight launched the church into a global phenomenon. But that was not reinventing Jesus, you see. That's showing the logical extension of what Jesus had come to do. And so Paul comes back to the small Jewish church of Damascus, as Luke says, when many days had passed. So let's keep reading Luke's account, Acts 9, 23 to 25. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. 
They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So we have to imagine Saul now. Lucas said that he's increased in strength, his insight into the First Testament, his ability to articulate Jesus, who he was, and what he'd accomplished, his power to persuade. Well, it's grown astronomically, and with that, the Jews plot to kill him. And I need to stop here and point out how the New Testament often uses the word the Jews. Remember, almost all of the Christian church in that time in history, well, they're all Jews. And so clearly when Luke says the Jews were trying to kill Saul, he's not saying that all the Jewish people were trying to do that. Instead, Luke uses the word Jews in a very restrictive sense. He's speaking about a religious establishment, or perhaps to be even more specific, he's speaking about the synagogue leadership. No doubt by now, the synagogue leaders in Damascus have sent letters back to the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, and they have word. Just like we killed Stephen, you'll do well to kill this man as well. And you have to believe that this plot would have been very hard to keep a secret. Luke simply tells us the plot became known to Saul. Someone came and told him directly, you're a marked man. Now that plot had a very specific timeline. I have no doubt that the day Saul became aware of it was probably also the day they were planning to kill him. It was evening and in the ancient cities, the the gates of the city were then closed and no one could get in, which meant, of course, no one can get out. So some believer simply lowered him by a basket over the wall. Paul would later write about that event in 2 Corinthians 11, 32-33, in which he said, At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Again, we see that Luke is giving us an abbreviated account. Apparently, the synagogue rulers had made an arrangement with the governor to arrest Paul. And so the warrant for his arrest would have gone out when he escaped the city. And so we can see that it was not just the synagogue officials who were looking for him. I mean, at that moment, Saul was already beginning to experience what God had told Ananias earlier, that he would be shown how much he was to suffer for the sake of the name. And with that, Saul makes his way to Jerusalem for his first meeting with the church of Jerusalem. I mean, years earlier, he had been the agent of persecution in that city. Now he returns as a transformed man. So let's read what Luke tells us next, Acts 9, 26 and 27. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them, how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And the reaction of the disciples of Jerusalem should be understandable. You know, it might now have been some time since they had last seen him, either heard about his activities or had direct interaction with him, but his physical presence surely brought back all the bad old memories. This man was to be feared. You know, perhaps some still remember that he was the man who had taken care of the cloaks of the members of the Sanhedrin who had stoned Stephen to death. Did you notice what Luke points out? It was Barnabas who took the chance on Saul of Tarsus. Barnabas and Paul. Well, they later team up to become the world's first ever international missions team. Theirs would be a fascinating story, but here the story is only beginning. But we do know several things about Barnabas. 
You might remember from Acts 4, it was Barnabas who had become known as the son of encouragement, the man who would lead the way in giving sacrificially for the growth of the church and the advancement of the kingdom. But Barnabas and Paul would have had other things in common. Barnabas was from Cyprus. Saul was from Tarsus, which means they both didn't grow up in Israel. They belonged to what was called the Jewish diaspora. Both men spoke Greek as their native language. But the thing that makes this story so encouraging is that Barnabas is the man who recognizes that transformation is possible. For all the people who say, well, his nature won't have changed. Barnabas is the one who expresses genuine faith in Christ's power to change human lives. And since he is well known to the apostles, he takes Saul of Tarsus and for the first time introduces him to the leadership of the church. Paul himself would mention this later in Galatians 1.18 when he says that he actually met only with Peter and then also with James, the brother of our Lord. I suspect he had met all of the others, but he had only had a private meeting with the two of them. But it was enough. Saul of Tarsus was then embraced by the men who knew how Jesus changed lives, making men who were once enemies of God into transformed agents of Jesus. Later on, Peter would say of Paul's writings, these are scripture. And as they say, the rest is history. Yeah, but what a history it proved to be. It was only made possible because Jesus really does transform human lives. He did it then, and he continues to do it today. Be open, my friends, when God transforms a life, and celebrate it whenever you see it. Thanks so much for your message, John. You know, I think everyone would agree that the conversion of Paul is a miraculous story. But is it worth our while to spend even more time really examining it more deeply? It it, it is, because if we are to think that, you know, again, I want to say it again, that there is so much in Saul's conversion that is different than ours, and yet there is so much that's similar— and, and uh, Paul later will make that case throughout the epistles, especially in Galatians, but in other books as well. So I think we need to learn from that conversion story, and we need to therefore examine our own conversion stories in that light, gain new insight, and I think through that gain more gratefulness. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global Beyond Jerusalem, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. We want to thank you for your faithful prayers and generous gifts that help ensure that solid Bible teaching is available around the world. Because of your generosity, all of our international Bible teaching efforts and partnerships happen including the distribution of Dr. John's new book, Making the Most of Your Salvation, being made available in 11 key languages distributed across India. It's such a privilege to work in partnership with you and ministry friends like Back to the Bible India and Back to the Bible Sri Lanka. As we work together, Bible resources are being made available around the world. And a special thank you for your gifts, the gifts you sent during our international focus in March. And may I encourage you to continue to support these international partnerships throughout the year, or even consider becoming an international monthly partner. To learn more or to offer a gift in support of international ministries, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2233.
2425.